0: You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American
1: Occupational Therapy Association. Helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg.
0: Today, I am joined by Dr. Rebecca Cunningham and Dr. Ashley Ueshiro simon Rebecca is an assistant professor and Ashley is an an associate professor of clinical occupational therapy at the University of Southern California. You both have worked at the USC OT faculty practice and have extensive clinical and research experience working with clients who have multiple sclerosis. The USC OT faculty practice is a national MS society partner in MS care. You both are MS certified specialists. Thank you both for being on the show today.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, of course. We're really excited to have two expert OTs on the show and would love to discuss your work in the USC MS clinic, as well as your contributions to an AOTA systematic review titled Interventions Within the Scope of Occupational Therapy Practice Affecting Instrumental Activities of Daily Living for Adults with Multiple Sclerosis. So to jump right into it, could you give us some background about multiple sclerosis?
2: Yes. So multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune condition. Sometimes it's referred to autoinflammatory um, in which the individual's immune system is attacking itself. And specifically it's attacking the cells that create the myelin sheath that wrap around the neuronal tissue within the central nervous system. Uh, The central nervous system is comprised of your optic nerves, your brain and your spinal cord. So what this damage causes is either slowing of the transmission of signals through the neuronal tissue, or for some individuals who have severe damage, it can actually eliminate some of those signals and being able to transmit throughout the central nervous system. Um, So this ends up resulting in a variety of potential symptoms based on where the lesions or the damage is within the CNS. So some people experience things like bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction. Most individuals with MS experience fatigue. You can also see visual deficits, changes in sensation, weakness, spasticity, et cetera. And so given the varied presentations that can occur with individuals who have MS, you can see really any occupation impacted by one's symptom level severity um, and whether someone is really relapsing, remitting, or progressive in nature.
0: Thank you very much, Rebecca. A- Ashley, was there anything you wanted to add onto that?
1: No, Rebecca did a great job of of summing that up. At least, like you know, the anatomy and the physiology. But I think what that you know what that means is MS can look very different person to person, depending on where some of these myelin sheaths are impacted and where some of the lesions in the in the central nervous system might occur. There's such a range and variety of um, presentations of MS. And therefore, such a wide range of uh, functional difficulties and functional solutions. You know, when, when you say you've seen one person with MS, you can't say you've seen them all, right? This, this is a disease that presents very differently person to person.
0: Very interesting. And, and with that variety of presentations of the disease, how would that affect OT's role in working with this population? Or, or what does really OT's role working with this population look like?
1: OTs really can help in all domains of life for somebody with MS. They can help people you know, get back to or start doing meaningful, important occupations in their lives that you, we can help with um, modifying or changing aspects of the environment to promote you know, safety and function and all that stuff. We can help people establish habits and routines, uh, develop skills to either compensate for or to teach new skills to, to manage the condition. Mm-hmm. This is also a disease that tends to affect younger folks. Like the diagnoses are often in someone in their 20s. So this is a chronic condition. So this is something that they're going to have their entire lives. But what you're looking at is really the lifespan, right? I mean, there is such a thing as pediatric MS. But uh, in general, most people are diagnosed in their like kind of early adult years, 20s and 30s. And they live with this for the rest of their lives. So this is very much about chronic condition management and ot's can help at any stage of the condition be it like newly diagnosed and you're trying to cope and you're figuring out your life as a young person and wanting to do young people things like go out with your friends or date or you know have babies or whatever it might be all the way through not just age related progression or age related changes in your life but also disease related changes in your life because this is a disease that often builds upon itself so a lot of this is prevention mixed with uh, rehabilitation and addressing the issues that you're experiencing now. Um, I think when we think about what you know what we can help with, uh, a lot of what we do, like especially for Rebecca and I, a lot of what we do is prevention, which we'll talk about I think a little bit later. A lot of what we do is you know managing what's happening in the now, So symptom management, like if they have pain or fatigue or anything like that, or, or, um, you know, decreased uh, sense in their extremities, whatever it might be, we can help with uh, rehabilitation after a relapse, because there's all different types of MS. And so a lot of people will experience these relapsing states where their disease progresses, it takes a sudden jump right? Some people recover after that jump back to baseline, and then some folks don't. Um, but we can help with that rehabilitation after a, a relapse. And then, you know, a lot of what we think about is like, how how do we prevent further disease activity? And how do we promote a healthier lifestyle to just really prevent that disease from building upon itself more more so than it, it um, naturally would? So I feel like, helping people with MS is just really an area where OT can shine, you know, Mm -hmm. we're great at thinking about how the past informs the present, which then allows us to be, to better plan for the future, right? We know how to prepare our clients to be flexible in their responses. And in a condition like MS that often feels really unpredictable, that's just something that really unique and important that I think OT brings.
0: Absolutely, I one of my favorite parts of of doing this podcast is learning about occupational therapy in working with a variety of populations, um, and I I feel like i I'm never cease I never cease to be amazed at at how well OT can fit um, in helping people from any type of background or with any type of disease or disorder. Um, so thank you for that overview, uh, Rebecca. Was there anything you wanted to add before we move on?
2: I think the only thing that I would add is. As Ashley mentioned, these individuals are going to be living with this condition for the rest of their lives. So, you have the potential then to seek the same client at different time points within their disease presentation. So, you might see them after a relapse, but then you might see them a few years later and they want to focus more on chronic condition management as opposed to the relapse recovery and rehabilitation process. So, you can really grow these bonds and relationships with clients that might last for years. Um, because they might be repeat um, consumers of OT services at your clinic.
0: Thank you. I I love that emphasis on on developing a relationship and a bond. Let's go ahead and jump in now to talking about this systematic review. The question you addressed in, or the, the research question, I should say, in the systematic review for the American Occupational Therapy Association was, what is the evidence for the effectiveness of interventions within the scope of occupational therapy practice to improve and maintain performance and participation in IADLs among adults with MS? So, how can you answer that question for us?
1: I mean, I think uh, what we want, what, what might give us a, a good sense of how we answered the question would be to walk through the process of how we actually did our search. And I think what we found doing this, this exercise is that, first of all, I think we have a newfound respect for people who do systematic reviews. Completely. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But the other, the other, I think, stunning part of this, at least for me and Rebecca, I don't know about you, but I think this really opened up my eyes to like, I, you know, as a clinician, I've always held systematic reviews on this pedestal as a gold standard right? Um, But I've always been disappointed, I think, at how uh, limited sometimes I feel like systematic reviews can be. And I think I experienced that in this process. Systematic reviews answer a very specific question, right? As they should, because that's what research does. But I think when, when I'm thinking about like all of the things that OT can do and all the ways that I use evidence in my practice, I think what this said to me was two things. Number one, you know how at the end of every every single study and systematic review, especially in occupational science, it says, more research is needed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is just like the standard first line of like, here's our conclusion. It, it I think that just like really shone a light on how true that was. The paucity of research articles that met our criteria, especially coming from occupational science, was just so like shocking to me. I think I knew it, but I had never done this process before. I mean, we went through hundreds and hundreds of articles, and it was just astonishing at how few really met our criteria to be included in this systematic review that were coming from an occupational scientist or therapist. And then secondly, just like thinking about all of the different creative ways of, of how OTs incorporate Um, occupation into their practice, I think for me, this process just shone a light on like at the value of um, experience and anecdotal evidence within your own practice. So like, yeah, this, this systematic review looked at studies, but I think when I think about my own practice, at least blending this, the results from the systematic review with what I absolutely like believe just from experience in my practice, that blend became even more important. Right. Because evidence is chronically like, you know, five years behind.
0: Absolutely. And I, I love that about our, our field because we encourage clinical reasoning um, and that personal experience as well as evidence based practice um, and are really focusing now on how to how to fuse the two, which Hopefully, uh, this interview can help people to do um, in consuming some of the the evidence from your systematic review and, and finding clinical applications and how it would apply to their own practice. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. To to touch a little more in that process, what IDLs, IADLs specifically did you include in your search or find evidence on? And how did you determine to include studies that you reviewed or not?
1: In terms of what IADLs did we include, we the search terms were like a full page long almost. <laughs> like the search, the search criteria was was extensive. And those terms were created with input from an advisory group that AOTA put together that was clinicians and evidence-based practice, like people who had experience doing systematic reviews and all of that kind of stuff. They included level one through three studies and uh, you know, the, the criteria they had were like level one through three adults with MS. So not, we weren't looking at pediatrics. Um, and intervention was within the scope of OT practice, which at that point was the, we were using the OT practice framework three and, um, a medical librarian actually did the search. So I think a team approach, you know, so that there's not only one person touching the systematic review, but it's more of a team effort. That was really, I think, crucial because they were looking at things from, they included every single IADL, like every version of every word of an IADL that you could imagine, they included in that search process. And then, uh, the duplicates were kind of weeded out or any articles that were like clearly, clearly not even remotely close to the scope of OT practice. And then that long list of references was just handed over to us. Um, and we basically made like a huge chart of uh, that tracked every single article that made like checklist of criteria that determined whether a study made it to like the next round of our <laughs> of our analysis or not. You know, when we thought about that process at the beginning, I think both Rebecca and I were like, "This is going to be great!" Like, we're so task oriented. We're very organized. We're like, "Yes, charts and check boxes, and it's mm-hmm. going to be awesome, and this is going to be so great." And what we realized that you know there was part of the vetting that was easy. Like, is, you know, is the average age of the of the participant you know eighteen or above? Yes, okay, great, you're in. Part of that vetting was easy. But when we got to the studies about health management and maintenance, IEDLs in particular, what we realized was this whole defining of what constitutes an occupation got messy. And it was kind of cool to go through that process of like, well, you know, when we're talking about like physical activity and exercise, there were a lot of articles about physical activity and exercise. Most of them were written by PTs and they were focused on components of, P- of physical activity, but they weren't. Like we read it and we were like, this is not an occupation. This is a component of an occupation or a skill of an occupation, but it's not an occupation in itself. So, and then we talked about like when we're doing practice, like sometimes we want to work on a skill that will lead to an occupation. So we had all of these like really great theoretical and, and professional conversations between us and then between us and uh, AOTA to think about, well, what guide rails do we want to set for ourselves? What, how are we going to quantify basically, and draw a line in the sand between what constitutes as an occupation and what doesn't. And I think that to somebody listening, that might sound like, well, I feel like that's obvious. But when we got into the nitty gritty of reading these articles, it was actually kind of gray. So what we did was we turned to the OT Practice Framework 3, which then at the time defined health management and maintenance ideals as developing, managing, and maintaining routines for health and wellness promotion. Such as physical fitness, nutrition, decreased health risk behaviors, and medication routines, et cetera, right? And then it also went on to define routines as patterns of behavior that are observable regular and repetitive, and that provide structure for daily life. So we took those two definitions of health management and maintenance ideals and of routines, and we said, and we basically decided where to draw our line in the sand. We said that any outcomes that we included, or any studies, Uh, We included had to have outcomes that, at least for the health management and maintenance ideals, they had to promote routines in some way, like they looked at carryover from clinic to home or they measured physical activity or whatever it was outside of the structured intervention time like how much are you doing on your own? Um, Or there was some sort of facilitated problem solving with an interventionist to try and like embed physical activity or whatever we were looking at, uh, whatever health management or maintenance ideal we were looking at into everyday life, right? And it probably took, I want to say, like three rounds of combing through the studies. You know, each time we narrowed down our inclusion criteria, we better defined what we wanted. We eliminated articles that didn't meet those criteria in the end. I think AOTA handed us about 527 articles. We read all of those abstracts and skimmed all of those articles to see if it warranted a full-text review. I think we did a full-text review for about 91 articles, and then at the end, we were just left with 20. So it was quite a process to like whittle down, but really intriguing, really, really clarifying, I think, for us along the way.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for kind of giving us a inside story on on how that process worked for you guys um, and and going from 500 articles to 91 to 20 um, that's a lot of weeding through and, and a lot of uh, narrowing down would you say that kind of emphasizes the need for ot practitioners across the country to to really actively participate in generating more research
1: absolutely and I think that's one of one of the things that we thought of at the end when we thought about like, how does this apply to practice? How does this apply to OT and OS in general is, you know, I think not enough occupational therapists think of themselves also as being able to contribute to occupational science, like the clinical research, right? Like being able to talk about even limited trials, or like things that you do in your clinic or program evaluation or anything like that, like I think that just speaks to the the need for us to shift our thinking a little bit. Rebecca and I are both both therapists, but we brought that therapy lens to this systematic review, and I think that has its own value because we're gonna the lens that we're looking at all of this science through is through the lens of therapy. so I think any therapist who is interested or can, I mean, I would absolutely encourage people to start dabbling in science and research, right? And contributing to that body of literature.
0: Thank you. I love that. I love that call to, to action to start dabbling in research. Why not? And uh, Rebecca, let's let's dive into some of the results that, that uh, you found. What interventions were found to be supported by evidence as effective interventions to improve and maintain IADL performance?
2: So at the conclusion of our systematic review, we had 20 articles left. Um, Most of them were focused on physical activity, health management, IADLs. Um, So we created themes based off of the specific IADLs that were being assessed by the outcome measures in these different studies. And we had some that were looking at home management and financial management IADLs. We had one study that was looking at meal prep IADLs but the majority of the articles were looking at health management and maintenance IDL, specifically physical activity and medication routines. So we took the physical activity theme and broke it down into three sub-themes based on the interventions that were provided. So we saw coaching alone interventions. We saw an intervention that was coaching plus prescribed exercise. And then we had two papers that were looking at prescribed exercise alone and based on the analysis of the strength and the quality of the design of the studies and the consistency of the findings across these different articles. For coaching interventions alone for physical activity, we saw a strong strength of evidence for providing a statistically significant improvement in self-reported physical activity participation. For the interventions that were coaching plus prescribed exercise, we saw a moderate strength of evidence And that had to do with some conflict in the findings. We had one article that saw a statistically significant improvement um, in individuals who are receiving both the coaching and the prescribed exercise. And then the other articles did not show that statistically significant improvement. So because of the conflict there, we really need more research to have some sort of conclusive recommendation. So as of right now, there's moderate strength of evidence for coaching plus prescribed exercise. And then the prescribed exercise alone interventions for physical activity was a low strength of evidence at this point because of limited number of articles and small sample sizes. And then for um, medication routines, the interventions that were used in those articles were coaching interventions, and we saw moderate strength of evidence for using coaching interventions to provide a statistically significant improvement in medication routine compliance.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. And as uh, Ashley mentioned, systematic reviews are the, the gold standard of evidence and excellent resources, um, but in themselves do have limitations and, and I guess aren't always end-all be-alls uh, when it comes to, to research and interventions. I want to ask you now what I think is, is some of the most important questions to consider uh, when consuming evidence in systematic reviews based on the findings from this review. What steps would you recommend a practitioner take uh, to implement some of these interventions into their practice?
1: So I think one one general like high level takeaway for for me at least was coaching is key, right Like when you're looking at IEDL performance in particular, Health management and maintenance, which is what the majority of our articles looked at for both physical activity and medication management, coaching is really. I think it's the key, right? Like, and it it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense for those of us who who do a lot of patient care, focusing on patient education. You know, facilitating problem solving, follow up, accountability. Um, those are all really the key. It's to teach the clients. You know, how to form routines on their own, what to do when the routine gets off track, how to problem solve around barriers, how to listen to their bodies, right? To to know when to push and when to back off. I think it's really that kind of coaching. It's not you telling the client, oh, this is what is happening and here's what you should do, right? It's it's like telling them, here's how you should actually problem solve around it. That kind of coaching to me, and that facilit like facilitating that skill of the client being able to problem solve for themselves and having the skills to be able to do so, that to me is, is really the key. And that held for both physical activity and medication management. I think the coaching was, was the highlight. And and when I say coaching, I think it can look different. Like we do a lot of quote unquote coaching in lifestyle redesign. I think one study that talked about medication management used motivational interviewing. It's the other M abbreviation. I think the other combined a bit of coaching with like telehealth reminders, but to me, the common thread was it's all about coaching and coaching is a very broad term, but it involves like a lot of therapeutic relationship. It involves a lot of understanding where the client is at in terms of their own understanding of how they are managing their, their MS. And it involves a lot of like, uh, skill building, but not skills in the sense that we usually think of. It's skills to solve their own problems, to feel, to basically, I used to joke with my clients about this. I used to sell them, I'm trying to make you into a mini OT. Like, I just want to give you the things that I know so that you can OT yourself. That's kind of what we're talking about, right? So I, to me, that was the the biggest takeaway for clinicians is like, it's not that you don't help people build the skills that we normally think about or train people to do X, Y, and Z, right? Or to work on body mechanics or anything like that. But the goal is really to help them learn the skills that they need to make their own decisions, right? Or to, to change their own habits and routines around management of their MS disease. So I think that was that was it for me, at least.
0: Absolutely, Ashley. I love that focus on coaching and the end all of or the end goal of therapy being enabling um, a client or a patient to to take control of of their own health and really be a mini OT. I love that example, Uh, Rebecca. Did you have any other tips um, or or advice on on how practitioners could become better coaches or or implement some coaching techniques into their practice?
2: Yeah, I think to kind of uh, echo what Ashley was saying, I think. Seeing the emphasis on coaching interventions in these articles was very confirming for me as someone who provides lifestyle redesign services, because as she was saying, so much of what we do is coaching. The other kind of tips that I would say is that if you are interested in honing or improving your skills with these types of coaching interventions is to seek out continuing education um, in these areas. There are motivational interviewing specific continuing education opportunities um, as well as like social cognitive theory, there's different models of coaching. So it's figuring out what works best for you in your specific practice and then seeking out resources and continuing education so that one feels more competent and capable and in integrating it into their regular OT service provision and plans of care.
0: All right. Could, could you share now with uh, a case example or personal story of how these evidence-supported interventions um, could be implemented to promote positive outcomes in clients?
2: Yes. So I have a case example from a client that I was actually working with last summer. We were doing uh, telehealth-based services because of the pandemic. Um, And he's an individual in his 40s who has relapsing-remitting multiple sclerosis. And one of his primary goals seeking ot services was to get back into his physical activity routines he is somebody who historically had been very active um, especially after his ms diagnosis he had done his research he had followed his recommendations from his physicians and really focused on increasing his physical activity so he could keep his conditioning level up as well as work on managing weakness and fatigue and over time um, as he became more stable on his, with his MS because of the medication that he was on, that physical activity level dropped off significantly to the point where when I saw him, he was really only maybe physically active once a week. And his preferred form of physical activity was cycling. He was an avid cycler, had been part of these different groups, and his goal by the conclusion of our time together was to be able to do a centennial ride. I learned a lot about cycling and cyclists during this time. A centennial ride is uh, a continuous one ride that is 100 miles at least. And so I used the lifestyle redesign model to help him achieve those goals. We increased his physical activity slowly over the course of the 12 visits that we had together. And by the conclusion of our plan of care, he had completed two centennial rides. And was exercising five days a week and doing something that he really loved, was meaningful for him, helped him to feel socially connected to the important people in his life. Um, And he was just thrilled with his achievement of that goal, especially because there was a big birthday for him that kind of surrounded these centennial rides. And so that was an example of really using coaching interventions to increase physical activity without me prescribing him any exercise, right? We collaboratively collaboratively would talk about what the increase or the graded challenge to the exercise looked like. But at the end of the day, it was him making those decisions based off of how confident he felt in moving forward with his progress.
0: That you couldn't write a better you know, movie script um, than, than that case example um, of not only achieving you know, the goal of, of doing a centennial ride, uh, but doing two of them by the time mm-hmm. your treatment was over. Um, that really speaks volumes into how effective coaching um, and, and these interventions can be um, when working with people who have MS. Absolutely. Um, so thank you very much. What is something you would like to see practitioners do differently based on evidence-informed interventions presented in this systematic review?
1: So I think, yeah, we we definitely did touch on this before, but I, I think it's worth reiterating. Um, I feel like sometimes as clinicians, we often focus a lot on, you know, the symptom or the functional deficit or solving one occupational issue after another, just kind of like boom, 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 you know, like the COPM, just like checking them off the list, like, yeah, we're doing this. But I think uh, especially when we're talking about the health management and maintenance IADLs of life, and we're, cho- we're talking about like changing someone's everyday routines. We have to like dig into the psyche to really unpack the existing routine. Like why was it built? Why are you... Let's examine why you're currently doing the things that you're doing without even thinking about it, right? And then we got... Um, I think we have to teach our clients the skills to create new routines for themselves. So again, it's that giving them the skills to then have them create routines for themselves routines are these living, complex, evolving things. So, you know, in treatment, you often see people for 12 sessions or whatever insurance will allow, right? But their routines are so much more than that. They're everyday, they're constant, they're complex, they're always evolving. So creating one great routine for one moment in time really solves almost nothing. And I think because of that, this idea of, yes, we need to problem solve, you know, for specific occupations, we need to rehabilitate all these kinds of things. But when we're talking about health management routines and how to maintain routines or how to maintain health. And in this case, how to prevent further disease activity. I think it really is about helping people to be their own mini OTs, helping people to figure out, well, how do I analyze, how do I self analyze my own behaviors, my own habits, my own routines? And then how do I go about making change if I want to, you know, there's a lot of habit uh, theory out there. And routine building theory out there about like okay, we'll set small little goals so to the point where your your body and your brain think about that goal and there's not this negative adverse reaction of like oh I don't want to do that right so break down the task or break down the goal small enough where even if your goal is to move more and you just put on your shoes if you put on your your tennis shoes every day at five o'clock. Maybe that's enough to kickstart the habit. And maybe the next time you put on your shoes, then you'll actually go outside to take a walk, even if it's around the block or down to the mailbox, even. You know, like I think teaching people those kinds of skills to say, well, how do you grade an activity? How do you set small goals for yourself to achieve so that you're not looking at the top of Mount Everest and saying, I'll never get there, but you're looking down at your feet and taking one step at a time? Those are the kinds of skills that I like to see practitioners. I think we do this a lot, but I think especially when we're talking about habit and routine formation, those are really the skills that people want to highlight.
0: Absolutely. I love that, Ashley. And it, it makes me think in, in school, I know me and a, a lot of members of my cohort kind of could recognize how we started to, to view the world differently. We called it seeing things through a, the OT lens. And, and really, I think there's a lot of value in trying to help uh, clients that we work with to see through an OT lens right. um and and really develop those skills so i i love that recommendation thank and you and the
1: question is how do you do that in you know 12 one hour sessions or however many sessions you get with that person
0: yeah easier said than done is there any other tips you would give to to help practitioners incorporate that into their 12 one hour sessions
1: um that's a great question you know i i think for me and rebecca you feel free to jump in cuz i know you're closer to clinical practice now for me when i think about like how do you how do you teach someone to be a mini ot on themselves i think it boils down to basics almost like when i you know when you start with the real basics of behavior who are you as a person like your identities right what are your values? What do you want out of life? It seems like a far removed thing, but I think sometimes we glaze over that in the in the occupational evaluation just to get to the functional deficit part. But I think when you boil it back to well, why do you want to change what you want to change right? It's touching on motivational interviewing almost like when i when you boil it back to that, then there's so much more of a a connection, like a broader point of view of oh, this is why I want to change my routines. And this is how, you know, like even even just teaching somebody habit theory, like this is how habits are formed. This is how routines are made. This Then that will inherently teach people how to change them. If you analyze your existing habit and then you just create a little bit of dissonance with the things that you want to stop and you create less friction with the things that you want to do more of, sometimes even that, boiling it down into like little sound bites like that is enough for clients to catch on and to say, oh, this is what it's about right? This is how I change this. You know, this is how I stop smoking, or this is how I get better sleep, or this is how I have a few more veggies. So to to teach them the skills of, like, activity grading, to teach them the skills of goal setting, to teach them how habits and routines are formed, those are all things that, yeah, we learn them in OT school, but conveying that information, I think, empowers the client and really incentivizes them so much more especially when we can connect it to their identities their values you know what their goals in life
0: absolutely helping our client find their why and their motivation for for making these changes exactly
1: what is your why yes
0: that's very tom brady-esque um <laughs> that's
1: not where i got it from. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: know, I know. Um, rebecca is there anything else you wanted to add there
2: no i think it's just habit change comes really like Ashley was saying boils down to is figuring out what motivates somebody to even consider changing and then breaking down the thought patterns that inform their decisions about their behaviors and their activities. A lot of what we end up doing is yes, looking at, you know, the existing patterns of behavior within a habit or a routine, but then assessing what are the thought-based barriers that come up to change. And challenging those, whether that's through assessing their values or looking at how that change might influence their perception of their identity, but really kind of digging in a little deep because if we can't, if we don't change the thought patterns, then it's really challenging to change the behavioral pattern.
0: Absolutely. Thank you both. What resources would you recommend to listeners who, who want to learn more about the results of, of this systematic review um, and, and some of these evidence based interventions that we've been discussing?
2: So I think I mentioned this earlier that we wrote a manuscript, we have submitted it to AJOT, so hopefully the findings of the IDL question systematic review will be included in, a, in an issue of AJOT, and then we will be completing critically appraised topics that we will submit to AOTA to be uploaded on the website and disseminated by the AOTA organization. And then I think if you're really looking at evidence-based interventions for MS is really doing literature searches, Right. Um, looking sure at what's already on the AOTA website and an AJOT, but then looking at other journals as well. So for example, there's the International Journal of MS Care, which is purely um, a journal focused on evidence-based and research articles for the MS population that's multidisciplinary in nature. So you will see, you know, basic science that's looking at medications and things like that, but you also see rehabilitation-based articles pop up in that journal as well. So I think that those are some really good resources.
1: Yeah, and along those lines, the Center for MS, or the Consortium of MS Centers is also a really great Mm -hmm. organization and resource for continuing education. They have a big conference every year that is very, um, you know, rehabilitation slash allied health profession focused. It's nice to not have to go to tons of sessions about, like the biology of certain medications, <laughs> which are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, so that is a really great conference and and organization, too, to be a part of. And then the other thing that I wanted to add to what Rebecca said is the the manuscript that we submitted for... Publication in AJOT, which hopefully will hopefully if it gets accepted will come out in 2022, I believe. Um, That is going to be part of a group of articles, actually. So our question was about IADLs and MS, but there's also another question about ADLs, and there's also another question about caregivers, and another question about uh, community. I, I think community integration or something like that. So there's a there's a group of them coming out. So. It's not just about IADLs only. It's actually a a more comprehensive look just with different teams addressing different questions.
0: Perfect. Thank you both so much for those resources. And so you've both mentioned lifestyle redesign um, in our conversation already. Um, And I understand at USC you provide lifestyle redesign as part of occupational therapy intervention. Um, and when I say I understand that, I mean I I googled it um, and found <laughs> it on the USC faculty That faculty. is
1: a good first step. <laughs> <I like it. laughs> could
0: Could you please describe this approach to OT intervention and the evidence supporting its implementation?
1: Sure thing. I'm so glad you googled it because honestly, some some people haven't even done that. So props to you, Matt. Yep. Um, Thank yeah. Yeah. You. You're welcome. Uh, so. Lifestyle redesign is actually just lifestyle management, right? It's it's um, helping clients to manage the lifestyle factors that can impact their health. Lifestyle management can be done by any OT. There's no advanced certification or advanced practice or anything like that. It's something that you can learn and then embed in every single practice setting that uh, that exists for occupational therapy, mental health, pediatrics, geriatrics, sniffs, you know, acute care. Even there's OTs. Implement, or, or integrating lifestyle management into their practice everywhere. Lifestyle redesign is a, a type of a specific type of lifestyle management that was created and developed and researched at USC. And it is it, lifestyle redesign as that specific uh, technique is unique to USC um, and it's manualized and everything like that. So <laughs> lifestyle redesign and lifestyle management are exactly what they sound like. We help people create healthier habits and routines to promote better well-being better management of chronic conditions better health overall right lifestyle redesign uh has four different components so now we're talking about lifestyle redesign not just lifestyle management in general but lifestyle redesign has four components patient education peer-to-peer sharing when applicable because sometimes it's done individually and sometimes it's done in groups, self-analysis, right, and self-reflection, and then occupational engagement. Uh, It uses this kind of modular approach. So clients will go through one module at a time, and the modules are things like uh, eating routines, physical activity engagement, stress management, self-regulation, fatigue management, body mechanics, sleep hygiene and positioning, you know, like all these different sorts of topics that apply to uh, that particular person's life and their um, whatever they're coming in for. Right. Um, the modules will change because of that. The modules will change depending on the diagnosis and the client, Right. And the speed at which you kind of work through those modules also depends on the client's goals and how quickly they're kind of able to enact behavior changes in their life. In terms of evidence, I think the first study about lifestyle redesign was published in the late 90s in the Journal um, of the American Medical Association. Uh, I think the citation is Clark et al., Uh, with Dr. Florence Clark leading the way. And it was with a population of people they called well-elderly, meaning they weren't necessarily like they didn't all share the same diagnosis. They were kind of community dwelling adults, but it was really a hallmark study, um, that showed that lifestyle redesign could prevent or slow functional decline in these well elderly people. So they basically said like, you know, you just live your lives. We're going to intervene with, you know, a randomly selected half of you or part of you. And then we're going to measure pre and post, What's happened, like what sorts of functional changes have happened? So it really showed the preventative power of lifestyle changes and of this specific life management technique called lifestyle redesign. And from that point on, lifestyle redesign has been clinically applied to just tons of different populations of folks with chronic conditions um, whose condition or whose well being can be positively influenced by lifestyle changes, right? So, uh, you know, we have lifestyle redesign for. Uh, for weight management, lifestyle redesign for people with diabetes, for chronic pain, for migraines and headaches, for um, mental health, uh, most commonly anxiety and depression, but all sorts of mental health uh, diagnoses. Um, For people with Parkinson's, lifestyle redesign for people with epilepsy, lifestyle redesign for women's health, right? Um, And pelvic floor. We even used lifestyle We even use the principles of lifestyle management in primary care OTs, right? Like on the front lines of healthcare. So the list goes on and on. But that's because obviously, as we know as OTs, the routines and habits you engage in in everyday life greatly influence and sometimes even dictate your functional engagement and sometimes whatever, you know, condition you might be living with itself. So it's really kind of gone through this process. And now we're almost... Like we started with that Hallmark study. It blossomed, lifestyle design really blossomed clinically. And now we're kind of looking at this like period of time where now we're researching all of these different offshoots of lifestyle design and the different populations that we can use it with. Now we're starting to look at clinical evidence for, okay, well, how effective is it is with this population? How effective is it with pain management? All of that kind of stuff. I don't know if there's anything you want to add, Rebecca, but it's kind of the, the lifespan of Lifestyle Redesign in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, th- thank you for that summary of of Lifestyle Redesign. It really sounds like an approach that just makes sense to OT practitioners or anyone with an occupational uh, therapy background, um, that, it, that it makes sense that it would work. Um, and I love how it is be- being applied to, to so many different populations and, and is growing. Um, was there anything you wanted to add, Rebecca?
2: No, I think Ashley's summary provided the, you know, a totality of the overview of how lifestyle redesign started and where it's gone since then um, and the breadth of what we're providing at the OT faculty practice across these different populations.
0: Perfect. What does the lifestyle redesign approach look like specifically for clients who have multiple sclerosis?
2: At its core, it's going to look the same across all populations um, in terms of what Ashley is mentioning about those four um, essential components to be providing lifestyle redesign. I think if I am considering what we might focus on more often with the MS population compared to maybe some of our other populations that we see at the OT faculty practice, like fatigue management is probably the number one thing that we focus on or is focused on the most often in a lifestyle redesign plan of care for individuals with MS uh, because I think the stat is something like 75 to 90% of individuals with MS experience chronic fatigue. And it can be really debilitating in terms of regular day-to-day activity participation. It can be so severe that people have, are unable to get out of bed. So this is something that we spend a lot of time uh, addressing. Not only like the principles of fatigue management, but also then how do you integrate those into your daily activities, habits, and routines so that we're managing that symptom better and allowing the individual or supporting the individual and being better able to participate in their day-to-day. Fatigue management is something that we do a lot of. Medication routine management is something that um, I focus on quite often with my clients because the MS-specific medications that they're taking are really intended to reduce the risk of a relapse or progression of their condition. And so if someone's, you know, missing doses 25% of the time, that's increasing their overall risk for having a relapse, accruing progression, um, and reaching a higher level of disability, um, which is then, you know, going to impact their occupational performance. And then I think another difference that I notice when I'm evaluating somebody with MS versus maybe A college student or somebody who's coming for anxiety management um, only, I spend more time in the medical history review um, because often these individuals have comorbid conditions um, and there are a lot of different potential MS symptoms that you want to make sure to screen for to ensure that you're capturing the totality of somebody's symptom presentation so that you know best how to assist them um, and what to focus on in your plan of care. So I think at the core When you're working with someone uh, with an MS diagnosis from a lifestyle redesign perspective, the core of what you're doing is going to look similar to anything that you're doing with any diagnosis, but there are going to be certain things that you might spend more time on compared to other diagnoses or populations.
0: Okay. Thank you for for describing that approach for us. Could you share a, a case example or a personal story of when lifestyle redesign led to a positive outcome for a client, uh, with MS?
1: Sure. Um, so I, this is actually for a group that we used to have in our division. Um, I used to teach a class and actually Rebecca also used to teach the same class after I stopped teaching it. But basically I I used to teach a class that, uh, help students learn how to use lifestyle design with clients who had MS. Um, And the super neat part about this course was that the MS Society, the National MS Society used to help us recruit people with MS from the community to come in and work with these students, basically be, willing guinea pigs. Um, but it was this like wonderful symbiotic relationship where students could learn about cyber design and then immediately just turn around and like try it on a real person. And then the person f- with MS from the community got to benefit from what was essentially free treatment, right? Sup- free supervised uh, OT treatment. But they were also responsible and tasked with teaching their students about what life with MS was really like, you know, giving students feedback about what was working for them, what wasn't their therapeutic experience. So everyone was kind of growing and learning together, which was wonderful, but it was this kind of group collaborative clients with, with students, with me as faculty or with Rebecca as faculty, kind of symbiotic relationship. And one week, um, one of my favorite weeks in that course, because again, it followed the lifestyle redesign kind of modular approach. One of my favorite weeks in the course was when I used to do a talk for everybody on bowel bladder and sexual function, because so many people with MS experience pelvic floor changes. Um, and so I would teach them about like ana- their anatomy, you know, the physiology, like how signals are all supposed to work in concert, because believe it or not, if you've never like taught yourself about uh, pelvic floor or bowel bladder function, there's like a bajillion different things that need to go right in order for you to just like sit down and use the bathroom, which is like wild to think about. But for them, they lived it every day. And they were a lot of them would wonder, like, why do I sit down and nothing comes out? Or I just went to the bathroom. Why do I have to go again? Right. So we would talk about like anatomy and physiology and signals working in concert and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And. (laughs) It was my favorite because, like you know, who everyone would giggle, right? Who doesn't giggle when you talk about like poop and sex? Um, not together, hopefully, but <laughs> but it was just like this wonderful conversation. We it had all of the components of lifestyle redesign, right? Like the didactic teaching, which was me kind of teaching them about all their physiology and like this kind of stuff and how routines and habits can influence bowel, bladder, and sexual function and health. Um, and then we would do a bunch of peer to peer sharing to. Meet two purposes really to destigmatize the issues that they were experiencing, um, because a lo- very few people even feel comfortable bringing this stuff up with their providers. But then also to hear what solutions people had already come up with for themselves, because you know there's fifteen community members sitting in a room and one of them has come up, at least one of them usually has come up with some kind of creative solution for themselves that the OT students can learn from, that the other participants can learn from, that I can learn from, right? Um, And then the students would help the participants to kind of problem solve these uh, issues and these routines so that it would help them better manage their bowel, bladder and sexual function and health. So you saw, you kind of saw all these different components of lifestyle redesign being built in to a group setting, which was, you know, the didactic presentation, the peer-to-peer sharing, the uh, the problem solving, like that facilitated problem solving, right? Um, some clients or some participants needed to like reduce their water before bed. Some needed to do some bladder training. Some needed to reduce the amount of coffee they were drinking to because like the acid in coffee was irritating their bladder. Some people needed to increase the fiber in their diet. Some needed to do yoga to help them with bowel movement. Some needed like coaching on communication so that they could initiate sex with their partner or communicate what worked and what didn't for their partner, right? So there was this wonderful breadth of things that, that could be addressed within this one topic. Um and then as part of like the occupational engagement piece, of course, of course, we practiced some Kegels because <laughs> everyone always wonders about Kegels. And by the way, if you're wondering, males can do Kegels also. Um, and the rest of the day people were, you know, People would come back and forth from the bathroom, going like, "I just tried that relaxation thing and it worked," or like, you know, they would tell their students, "Like, I'm going to go to the bathroom because it's been an hour and a half, and I just know that I'm going to, you know, that that feeling is going to overwhelm me soon, so I'm going to go preventatively and try to train my bladder." Like, you just saw them kind of in a hopeful way, incorporating these things into their lives already. So, to me, that that class and that you know that lecture is just a fun example. But every single class looked like that with. um with all of those different components of lifestyle redesign baked in. And to me, the the cool thing was each interaction was its own little demonstration of lifestyle redesign. Like there was lifestyle redesign happening at all different levels. And you could take that model and modify it for, you know, one-on-one treatment for any kind of setting. But um, it was just this wonderful example of like, here are all four components of lifestyle redesign, and here's how they can work in concert to really promote the self-management of a, a disease for somebody else.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that example. Um, it really illustrates how beneficial lifestyle redesign can be, um, especially with a topic that may be considered very difficult to, to come up with interventions for. Me and the listeners really appreciate that. And if our listeners want to learn more about lifestyle redesign and how to incorporate some of its principles or techniques into their own practice, um, what could they do?
2: So they have a few different options so they can look up like the original lifestyle redesign based articles that started in the 90s and we published other lifestyle redesign based um, both research and clinical outcomes articles um, in AJOT and other um, journals. So that's one thing that individuals can do. Uh, They can also look at the Lifestyle Redesign Manual, which is available. I think we have the second edition out right now. And that really does provide both the literature review and the evidence behind Lifestyle Redesign within that manual, and then also modules and different ideas that people can use to address different areas of lifestyle, such as eating or self regulation or exercise or um I think in the what elderly uh manual there's uh pieces about like community mobility so there's a breadth of ideas that you can follow to really develop and implement uh your own lifestyle redesign based group or lifestyle redesign informed group and then the last option that I you know was thinking about in preparation for this recording Was the life management series, which is a continuing education series offered through the Chan Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at USC, which provides like an introductory course that you're required to take. And then you have like electives, basically, where you can dive deeper into MS or into sleep or chronic pain and headaches. But, you know, different populations that you might be interested in that really relate to your own clinical practice. So those were the, you know. Highlight the things that I wanted to highlight in regards to this question. Um, Ashley, was there anything that you wanted to add?
1: No, you hit them all.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, we're coming now to the end of this interview. I just have two more questions. Uh, first, being, what additional resources would you recommend to listeners?
2: I mean, I was thinking about what we were talking about earlier in relation to like the contro- the consortium of MS centers and that annual conference, um, the International Journal of MS Care. A couple of other things that I noted were the National MS Society. Um, I think that they have some really nice resources for both clinicians as well as patients. So if it, someone is working with an individual who has um, an MS diagnosis and they want to find a MS-specific support group, or they want you know, information that's been translated into Spanish so that they can share that with their family members, the National MS Society has some really nice resources And then the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America has additional resources for both patients and healthcare providers. And one of the things that I always highlight about the MSAA is that they have a cooling equipment distribution program, as well as an adaptive equipment slash durable medical equipment distribution program, which I think are helpful resources to know about for patients.
1: And I would just add to that, I think in terms of MS resources and stuff, they're after, I think, If you see our names, both Rebecca and I have MSCS as part of our credentials, and that stands for MS Certified Specialist. Um, And for those who work with a lot of clients with MS and who want to get that advanced practice uh, certification, I think that's a really valuable thing because that puts you on a registry so people can uh, and patients can actually find you more easily because they know that you're a specialist in that area. Um, And then in terms of lifestyle management, just other resources that might be helpful. There's tons of lifestyle management, continuing education sessions that are like popping up at conferences and, you know, different people are hosting these things and everything. So those are great. And I think, you know, we would just emphasize every OT can do lifestyle management and they can incorporate it into any practice area. So um, it's you're probably already doing it, honestly, to be (laughs) to a certain extent. It's just about getting used to it and being really purposeful. About how you talk about it, communicate it, learn about it, and involve, and in, um, incorporate it into your practice.
0: Absolutely. Thank you both so much. And our final segment of the show, uh, what I like to call the Golden Nugget segment. I just ask you two this question If there was one piece of advice, a recommendation you could make to OT practitioners, what would you say?
1: This is the hardest question to answer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For me, so I mean, listen. We Rebecca and I see the OT world through this lifestyle redesign lens. So to me, the one of the things that I thought about was um, uh, I've also been having a lot of very philosophical ideas lately. So <laughs> forgive this, but I feel like in our um, in our Western medical model kind of world, I think we tend to downplay or even forget just the power of lifestyles and everyday routines, even as OTs, sometimes we take these things for granted because we're so involved with like fixing a problem or rehabilitating a person or achieving that occupation, right? All of those things are so meaningful, but these everyday like routines and habits are things that you do without even knowing, sometimes without your consent that you've just adapted and you just do them every day and they can so influence and predict health and well being. So even though I feel like this Western medical model that we kind of, you know, with insurance and billing and don't get me started on those kinds of things, but like this model that health model that we've built for ourselves, if you're in a practice that bills insurance and everything like that, it just it's been deemed as this kind of lesser or foofy or like not as important or even worse, some like trendy. <laughs> you know, like I see things on like TikTok and Instagram all the time. I'm just like, oh gosh. Um I think what we have to remember as OT practitioners is, like, go back to your roots. Like, that's where our power lies. These everyday things that we do often without thinking about it, that is where the power of, to me at least, healing often lies. So- being able to help people look at these routines, analyze them, think like an OT, like that is just the most powerful thing that I feel like we could give people.
0: Absolutely, thank you, Ashley and and Rebecca. Same question to you. Can you share with us your your golden nugget? I, I
1: think I was thinking
2: a lot about this as Ashley was talking, and I don't want to be repetitive to what she was saying. Um, I, I think as somebody who practices lifestyle redesign on a regular basis, I think especially early on in my practice, I had to get comfortable with kind of feeling like I was in the gray zone, right? Um, Where I was not outside of my scope of practice, but felt like I was in a squishy gray area that was not clearly in alignment necessarily with what I was trained to do during school. Um, But I find that the gray area is often what is the most meaningful and resonative for clients. And as long as we can document the gray area effectively. It's still OT practice. It's still billable service. So I, I guess my golden nugget of advice or recommendation is to get comfortable or to explore the gray area, because I think that's where a lot of aha moments happen for clients as you're talking about values and breaking down their thought patterns. I, I think that's where a lot of clients have their most um, important insights. And kind of revelations—not to, you know, misuse that word—but uh, during their plans of care. So I would say, you know, explore the gray area.
0: Absolutely, those are. Yeah, I, I was going to say those are wonderful messages to to end the show on, to embrace the gray area, um, and to help the people we work with think like OTs. Um, I love those messages. Uh, thank you both again for your time and for being on the show and sharing with us uh, all your knowledge and and experience.
1: Thanks for having us, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.